This podcast is about correcting the balance, whether it's something celebrated as good when it shouldn't be or the other way around. Or maybe the heroic tales of history just need to be knocked straight on their ass. Me, I just want to share the complete picture because that's when this whole thing gets fun. Warning, jokes and sarcasm may ensue. Welcome to Prick the Balloon. Hi, I'm Mike Vance, and this is episode 10 of Prick the Balloon. Y'all probably know that I am a sports guy, and I realize not everyone is, but bear with me. A couple of weeks ago, in the first round of the NFL playoffs, the Houston Texans beat the holy living pig snot out of the Cleveland Browns. Sorry, Cleveland. After the game, the broadcast team did an on-the-field interview with the winning quarterback, rookie C.J. Stroud, and C.J. went on two or three times thanking the Lord for giving him the opportunity, and so on and so on. You hear it every week, after every game, in every sport. It's nothing new. But a few days later, the entire American portion of the internet exploded with blatantly false stories and pearl-clutching outrage, screaming that NBC had edited out CJ's words about Jesus. But here's the thing. They didn't. I watched the game live. I saw every praise the Lord there was. I saw Tammy Faye crying. Nothing was edited out. So what in the wide, wide world of sports are these right-wing loons talking about? Well, Turns out they're rambling on about a promo piece that was indeed edited together and put up on social media to hype a later program. In other words, it was a promo piece edited for time. It's called the television business. That's how media works. Certain things have to fit a specific time slot. Do you think Elaine just looked at Kramer and said, Hey, you had a couple of good lines I don't want to cut, so let's just tell the network, also NBC by the way, that this week's episode will run 34 minutes. No, they don't do that. When your mom texts, How was the visit with Grandpa? You probably give the abridged version and skip the part where he recounts his hemorrhoid flare-up. You're editing for time. And editing for time is not media bias against conservatives or Christians, you perpetually victimization claiming jackholes. Media bias is falsely reporting that an election is stolen, or describing an armed gang of terrorists as a group of karaoke-singing Fujifilm representatives. Where, though, does this fit in American history? Is this a new phenomenon? This skewed reporting and wetting yourself if you don't get your heaping hourly helping of confirmation bias? Of course not. I mean, come on. Would I have chosen this as a topic if there was nothing to talk about? Pshaw. The first famous newsman in the Americas was Benjamin Franklin. He started a paper called the Philadelphia Gazette in 1729. That's almost 60 years before the Constitution was ratified and we actually became a country. Most colonial newspapers were just advertisements and clever little thoughts, like a penny saved is a penny earned, or don't French kiss a camel in July. But as the trouble that led to the revolution started heating up, Franklin and some of the others recognized the power of the press. And the two sides, for and against the split with Britain, started writing up editorials and pamphlets and broadsheets to make their case. These various newspapers and printers also mailed copies of what they wrote to other cities. There were about 30 newspapers scattered through the American colonies, so they could share the news. It was the AP wire service before there were even wires. That's how drunk revolutionaries in Boston could keep up with what drunk revolutionaries in Williamsburg were up to. Then they carried the paper to the outhouse, and the words were lost to history. Well, some of them at least. 
By the 1760s, Boston had a paper called the Gazette, which was friendly with Sam Adams and James Otis, the inventors of beer and elevators. And the Gazette was all pro-revolution. And then this Scots dude shows up and started the Boston Chronicle, and he started promoting King George and bad-mouthing the rebels and saying their mother was a hamster and their father smelt of elderberries, that sort of thing. Then James Otis wrote a piece under a pseudonym, which all of the writers did in the A's of Dueling, just smart, calling the editor-publisher of the Chronicle a Jacobite. I know, ooh, Jacobite. But in the late 1760s, that was akin to calling someone a traitor to the king and or saying that he slept with a goat named Barry. Take your pick. So the Chronicle guy bust into the Gazette offices demanding to know who had called him a Jacobite. And when he couldn't find out, he settled for attacking his rival publisher a few days later with a cane. In other words, bias and ugliness in American media didn't even wait for us to become a country. On the other hand, print media inspired our revolution. Though it was written decades later, Alexis de Tocqueville said, nothing but a newspaper can put the same thought at the same time before a thousand readers. Reports of the Boston Massacre, the Boston Tea Party, complaints about taxation without representation, all of that spread through newspapers and against the wishes of the British. One absolutely stellar piece was written by a man named Isaiah Thomas, though not the basketball player, in a paper called The Massachusetts Spy. And this account got sent all across the colonies, and it rallied people to fight. And not surprisingly, when you hear this completely over-the-top rabble-rousing, quote, Americans, with the exclamation point, forever bear in mind the Battle of Lexington, where British troops, unmolested and unprovoked, wantonly, and in a most inhuman manner, fired upon and killed a number of our countrymen, then robbed them of their provisions, ransacked, plundered, and burnt their houses. Nor could the tears of defenseless women, some of whom were in the pains of childbirth, the cries of helpless babies, nor the prayers of old age, confined to beds of sickness, appease their thirst for blood, or divert them from the design of murder and robbery, end quote. Design, murder, and robbery being in all caps. I mean, damn, Isaiah, you just keep piling it on there, right? Notice there is no mention of the Redcoats' viewpoint. No chance for Chauncey and Nigel to talk about eel pie. Not even a Colonel Smith did not return several messages requesting comment. So, that right there is the kind of one-sided reporting that brought forth on this continent a new nation. In my opinion, the first 20 or 30 years of the United States were the snarkiest and most fun period of media bias and bickering that we ever had. William Cobbett was this British guy who came to America to take part in this great new republic, only to find out that he absolutely hated the place. He hated people, and he especially hated the notion of equality. He settled in Philadelphia, and he became the most widely read news commentator of his day. And he did it all under the pen name of Peter Porcupine. Now, you might think that he was a direct ancestor of Randy Rainbow, except Peter Porcupine prattled on about family values and traditional Christian virtues, and how much he hated egalitarianism, and the very thought of women's rights made his powdered wig break out in hives. He was a hardcore radical right-winger, but he also made people laugh. He gave them entertainment. His biggest enemies were the Democratic Republicans of Jefferson and anyone who sided with the French revolutionaries. 
He made fun of Jefferson's interest in science and ridiculed him for dissecting things in order to study them. Huh, a right-winger who didn't buy into science. I'm surprised Peter Porcupine never quarterbacked the Packers. He called Ben Franklin, quote, a whoremaster, hypocrite, and infidel. And then, when a Scottish Democrat named Thomas Muir lost an eye in a naval battle, Cobbett, a.k.a. Porcupine, wrote, quote, so far, so good. The antithesis of William Cobbett was another Scotsman, this guy named James Callender. His reputation ended up being lower than the proverbial snake's belly in Death Valley, but he started out as this crusading pamphleteer in Edinburgh. And like Cobbett, he dealt in satire and personal attacks. He railed against the British crown, and he wanted to take a hunk out of the wealthy and powerful. Ultimately, Callender had to flee Britain to avoid prosecution. When he moved to the United States, one of the first things he went on about was the monarchist leanings of Washington, Adams, and Hamilton, who Callender satirically claimed wanted to start granting title positions and hereditary seats in the U.S. Senate. He made a living by ghostwriting and writing for hire, but in 1796, Callender broke the story that Alexander Hamilton was involved in corrupt hijinks with the husband of Maria Reynolds, a woman he had been making the delectable beast with two backs with for quite some time. Yep, Callender spilled the beans on Hamilton's longtime affair. And that's when Jefferson, in his best Montgomery Burns voice, said, Callender, I like the cut of your jib. So, Jefferson hired Callender to write some dirt on John Adams. At the same time, our old pal Peter Porcupine exposed Callender as the author of some of these slanderous writings, and Callender had to flee for his life, and he traveled from Philadelphia to Virginia on foot. If that's not enough, after he raked Adams over the coals by accusing him of all manner of corruption, Adams threw Callender in jail for violating the Alien and Sedition Acts that Adams had dreamed up to silence anyone who said anything bad about him. Callender's trial was presided over by a Supreme Court justice who was later impeached. Oh, a boy can only dream. The dude gives Callender the longest sentence of any of the journalists that Adams went after, and Callender is finally set free on Adams' very last day in office. Jefferson takes over as president, issues Callender with a pardon, but when Callender asked Jefferson to appoint him to a federal job, Jefferson said, well, no, that would be a betrayal of public trust. So Callender, in his wee little Scots voice, burrs out something about up your jacksy and starts writing nasty things about Jefferson. And it was Callender, the one-time voice for democracy, who broke the story of Jefferson's little pokey-pokey thing going on at Monticello. These are Callender's words from 1802 about the sitting president. Quote, It is well known that the man, whom it delighteth the people to honor, keeps and for many years has kept, as his concubine, one of his slaves. Her name is Sally. The name of her eldest son is Tom, his features are said to bear a striking, though sable, resemblance to those of the president himself. The boy is 10 or 12 years of age. End quote. After that news cycle was up, Callender wrote that Jefferson had once tried to score with a married neighbor decades earlier. By then, Callender had thoroughly pissed off both sides of the political spectrum. And who knows where it might have led, except that Callender got head-bangingly blutered one night about a year later and drowned in three feet of water in the James River in Richmond. Everyone in power wanted their own platform, and all of this so far might sound vaguely familiar, right? Alexander Hamilton started the New York Post because he just couldn't believe that Jefferson won the election of 1800. 
Once he was done throwing ketchup and Big Macs against the drawing room wall, after he'd sent a perfume note to his lawyer with the dyed hair and asked the guy to set up high tea at the Four Seasons Whale Oil Warehouse, Hamilton called on his best buddies to start a conservative newspaper to make our case where other people can't stop us from spewing lies. They originally wanted to call the paper Truth Social, but they settled for New York Post. I'm telling you, everybody was doing it. John Quincy Adams and Andrew Jackson, major enemies of one another, each were direct financial sponsors of newspapers. Newspapers very openly identified themselves as Democratic papers or Whig papers. It's Fox News, I'm telling you. You knew exactly what you were going to get. There was no pretense or laughable fair and balance bullshit. This was in your face. Van Buren's farts smell like roses, and Tippecanoe sucks donkeys. It was very simple for the simple-minded. Think Roger Ailes, but in a gartered stocking and a ball gag. By the 1840s, partisan papers outsold the nonpartisan ones. And there were abolitionist papers and pro-slavery papers. There were more than a dozen abolitionist newspapers, like the Liberator, the Emancipator, the National Anti-Slavery Standard— Actually, the first abolitionist paper in the U.S. dated all the way back to 1819, and it started in Tennessee. Most of the papers were run by whites, but not all. Most famously, Frederick Douglass had his newspaper called the North Star, referring to escaped slaves using the star to guide them to freedom. Obviously, these were kind of one-trick ponies, so in that sense, they were the ultimate in showing news bias. A typical issue of William Lloyd Garrison's Liberator, for example, might transcribe an important anti-slavery speech, word for ever loving word. There'd be meeting schedules, a poem or two, and reports of people being tried under the Fugitive Slave Act for helping runaways. And then Garrison would comment on what others said about those trials. This is from 1853, quote, Thus rants the Syracuse Star a Fillmore organ of the baser sort, over the conviction of Enoch Reed, one of the alleged rescuers of Jerry, as false in fact as they are hypocritical in cant, end quote. These abolitionist papers were hugely instrumental in the eventual end of slavery. Very important. But unless you really like hearing about Millard Fillmore's organ, let's face it, they are also kind of preachy and repetitive. Totally necessary in this case, but Still, imagine if your main source of news was your fat shirtless neighbor who's always pounding natty light in his garage. Woo! How about them cowboys? Here's today's headlines. Cowboys had them a meeting about training camp. Woo! Dak Prescott had to run up to Walmart. Ron DeSantis stopped running for president, but that's cause he's a Dolphins fan when he should be rooting for them cowboys. Israeli troops went into Gaza and found a bunch of people yelling like cowboys. Yeah, that would get old. Now, I don't want to be all negative here either. There are great examples of good journalism and, more importantly, thought-provoking disagreement. Like the best episodes of Dexter, you can see both sides. New York City and Philadelphia each had successful black newspapers in the years before the Civil War, the Anglo-African and the Christian Recorder. And it's interesting to see freedom of the press at play there. The Anglo-African in particular did lots of pieces about black life in the North and South, but there was activism also. One topic that was particularly interesting was that the two papers disagreed over whether to have black regiments that became the U.S. colored troops. The Christian Recorder was marginally against it, questioning why would these men risk their lives for a country that hadn't done much for them, and pointing out that if they were captured in the South, 
they could be put back into slavery. The Anglo-African, on the other hand, was all for it. One great passage was this, quote, Colored men whose fingers tingle to pull the trigger or clutch the knife aimed at the slaveholders in arms will not have to wait much longer, end quote. These newspapers, not just the abolitionist ones, were filled with great writers. I'd wager that a majority of the famous writers we studied in American English class worked at one time for a newspaper. Walt Whitman very famously wrote and edited for the Brooklyn Eagle. William Cullen Bryant was editor of the New York Evening Post. Mark Twain worked for a newspaper in Nevada. Horace Greeley started the New York Tribune in 1841. Greeley was a liberal Whig and very much against slavery, and in favor of reforming pretty much everything imaginable. He ran correspondence with Karl Marx in the Tribune. He also had the weirdest neck beard in the history of facial hair, like someone duct-taped two ferret tails under his chin. I mean, buy a scarf for fuck's sake. Anyway, Greeley developed the editorial page, where you get something actually identified as straight-up opinion. In other parts of the paper, the news would remain the news, fact-based news, and this set up the premise that we still use today. It's like, for the first time, you could order your salad dressing on the side. You could decide to hold the croutons, those nasty, pointless, desiccated cubes of dreck. It was open the window for a breath of fresh air. Except that you also got a giant whiff of your neighbor's rancid trash can and a bloated skunk carcass, because Greeley was more than a tad bit off the beam. Several beans shy of a bushel, as they say. Greeley was a hardcore New England guy. Harper's Weekly called him the most perfect Yankee the country has ever produced. He railed against alcohol, tobacco, gambling, prostitution, and capital punishment. The biggest, most ongoing trouble with Greeley is that he always wanted to hold high public office himself, as in he really wanted to be president, and actually grew bitter against people who wouldn't help him make that happen. He was one of the organizers of the Republican Party, but he opposed Lincoln in 1860 because Lincoln was not enough of a true believer against slavery. Greeley was not alone in that opinion. Thing was, he also opposed Lincoln again in 1864, even after the Emancipation Proclamation and three long years of civil war to preserve the Union and, by that point, end slavery. Before the Civil War, Greeley was adamantly against any compromise on slavery. But by 1864, he was pushing for a peace treaty and compromise. And ultimately, the guy wanted to end Reconstruction earlier, which was the worst possible idea on the planet. The whole thing is like telling Salma Hayek that you don't have time for a nightcap. He also, and I'm not making this up, signed the bail bond for Jefferson Davis. In 1872, Greeley got in a twist over Ulysses Grant, who was, as that episode discussed, a pretty liberal administration. But Greeley started his own party called the Liberal Republicans, even though his positions had moved to the right of Grant. And this was another one of those mind-blowing, weird-ass elections, because the Southern Democrats, the defeated Confederates, are so keen on getting rid of Grant that they decide not to nominate their own guy but rather to back Horace Greeley, who had been the biggest antagonist and thorn in their ass for the past 30 years. So imagine if Rachel Maddow totally loses her shit one night and says, I must be your queen, and Republicans go, eh, 
Who are we kidding? There's no way we win with this clown-faced criminal and con man, so we're all going to vote for Rachel Maddow because we hate Biden that much. And that, my friends, special deal real leather, is why major journalists probably shouldn't run for office. But Greeley and the New York Trib gave a separation of opinion and fact for the first time. The thing is that lots of other newspapers didn't follow that. Even the ones that did, like the Tribune, were still trying to influence public opinion, of course. Also, don't think for a second that the editorials on the opinion page were the kind of reasoned and measured things that come out in your newspaper nowadays. They were full-on screaming Emily Latella rants, just without the never mind. You want to talk immigration, for example? Let's look at what the partisan harpies were shrieking about the Chinese when other parts of the country were talking about bringing in new railroad workers from the West. The Galveston News, with the largest circulation in Texas, saw Chinese as, quote, the best, cheapest, and most reliable labor ever known, end quote. Their underlying motivation for this opinion was that bringing in the Chinese would force the freedmen to lower the asking price for their labor. So this was not all mutual admiration, and nobody was getting invited over for tea and scones. At the other end of the spectrum, though, the Dallas Herald's racist rhetoric was just flat beyond the pale. They called the Chinese, quote, miserable yellow imbecile dwarves, end quote. So that's what you were getting with opinion pieces in the 1870s. A few episodes ago, I talked about the Spanish-American War being drummed up by news reporting and exaggeration. And I didn't go into a lot of details about the two papers, Joseph Pulitzer in his New York World and William Randolph Hearst with his New York Journal. Hearst, by the way, was all eat up with that I-should-be-king affliction. It followed him for decades, that self-serving bastard. What I didn't talk about was that there was a positive side to those two papers, and others that tried to imitate them, or at least a somewhat non-negative side. For one, they kind of created big screaming banner headlines and juicy modern sensationalism. It was all about the competition between those two papers. If there had been such a thing as clickbait in the 1890s, Hearst and Pulitzer would have been the pioneers. Abraham Lincoln's cause of death revealed. You won't believe what Sarah Bernhardt smuggled in her anal cavity. (laughs) You were expecting me to go with leg. On the plus side, the world and journal were cheap. They cost a penny. So they truly became the people's media for the first time in American history. Those stories about grisly murders of scantily clad hookers appealed to the masses. They took the focus away from the interest of publishers and gave the everyday Joe on the street something to read. We can't help it if Joe has no fucking taste whatsoever. At least he was reading. And in between leering over corset ads, he might actually learn something. Occasionally, editorials brought real consequences. Around World War I, the publisher of our old friend, the New York Post, was a guy named Oswald Viard, who had inherited from his father. And though he was considered a progressive as a founding member of the NAACP, he had to sell the paper in 1918 because everybody in the country was accusing him of having pro-German sympathies, and people just quit buying his rag. In 1912, the American Society of Newspaper Editors formed, and they came up with the first guidelines and code of ethics. They got passed down to the Society of American Journalists. The Washington Post came out with a code of ethics. And here's how All Sides Media describes that. 
Quote, Those standards include a responsibility to report the truth with accuracy, a commitment to objective reports, and to distinguishing between news and opinion, a resolve to act independently and avoid conflicts of interest, and a respect for people involved in the news. End quote. It didn't end the bad actors, but it was a gigantic move in the right direction. Radio news amplified the problem of conflicts with advertisers because they didn't just put ads somewhere in the pages. You had specific sponsors for the news broadcast. Here's your evening news brought to you by the American Bund, where every night's a goose-stepping party. You can extrapolate the potential problems there, right? But on the plus side, what you got with radio that you never had with newspapers was government oversight. The Federal Radio Commission started in 1927, and it nationalized the airways. Since they are so finite in scope, they were declared public property. The Radio Commission became the Federal Communications Commission seven years later. One thing the FRC put in place within a year were prohibitions of cross-ownership. One person or entity couldn't control more than one station in a given market. The FRC said that it was not in the public interest for one voice or viewpoint to control everything on the radio. That was 1928, and you can count that as a diversity and inclusion program. It wasn't until 1975 that control, though, was extended across different types of media. Many, if not most, of the earliest big radio stations were owned by the local newspapers. Some papers saw radio as a novelty, but they figured, what the hell, let's go ahead and buy this signal. Then when TV came along, many of those dial spots there were bought by the local radio companies. Still, you could only own one of each in a given community. But there were always ways around that. At the start of the 1930s, my hometown of Houston had three newspapers and three radio stations, and all three radio stations plus two of the newspapers were controlled either directly or by proxies of one single guy. And Houston was not unique. Regulations had loopholes, and when there are loopholes, greedy people figure out how to use them. Political hands could be greased. Plus, it's good to point out that like TV prior to the 1990s, networks had deals with the biggest radio stations in town. NBC, CBS, and Mutual, and then after 1943, ABC. So, those big TV networks, the big three that we grew up with, all started in radio. If you want to look at the biggest source of media bias over time, look no further than ownership. That dates back to Gutenberg, and I don't mean Steve from Police Academy. Today, with the right-wing and centrists eliminating the last vestiges of anti-monopoly laws, you have more conglomerated media and communications ownership than ever. It is scary and evil, and we all lose. Just a couple of examples. Disney also owns ABC and ESPN, National Geographic, History Channel, A&E, Lucasfilms, Marvel, and 20th Century Studios. NBC and Universal are the same company, and they also own Telemundo, USA, Bravo, and oh yeah, they in turn are owned by Comcast. You get the picture, but only for 130 bucks a month. The rules tightened in 1975. Rupert Murdoch had to sell the New York Post because he owned too much TV, but he was granted a permanent waiver so he could buy it again. In that case, the paper would have closed without it. And in case there was any doubt whatsoever on when those ownership rules started being relaxed, it was 1984, under Reagan. TV news was started by old newsmen from other media. They believed in journalistic ethics. 
the major news networks adhered to those standards and they started doing investigative pieces like newspapers did and public affairs programs. One of the things credited with stopping Senator Joe McCarthy from ruining so many lives was Edward R. Murrow on his show on CBS in 1954, truly very early days of television. After nobody else had the balls to step up and do anything, Murrow decided to cross the boundary of total objectivity in the name of greater good. And here's Murrow's speech. Quote, This is no time for men who oppose Senator McCarthy's methods to keep silent, or for those who approve. We can deny our heritage and our history, but we cannot escape responsibility for the result. There is no way for a citizen of a republic to abdicate his responsibilities. As a nation, we have come into our full inheritance at a tender age. We proclaim ourselves, as indeed we are, the defenders of freedom, wherever it continues to exist in the world. But we cannot defend freedom abroad by deserting it at home. End quote. One of the worst things that TV did was bring looks into the equation. That was its own kind of bias added into the mix, except this was added by the viewers themselves. People started being superficial about who was delivering the message, rather than just concentrating on the message. Before television, there was a lot of journalists and politicians both who were uglier than the thought of a threesome with Selma and Patty Bouvier. Don't! After the nation saw Nixon's sweaty upper lip, things changed bringing us to candidates like Dan Quayle, Gary Hart, and Sarah Palin, and giant newsrooms filled with bleach-toothed men and women who couldn't, as they say in polite company, find their dick in the dark with both hands. Except for the women, because, you know, when two bees love each other. Anyway, just prior to the Reagan administration, and yes, I will in fact remind you again that that administration is the root of much of the evil that bedevils this country today. Before Reagan things in American journalism were probably better than they had ever been before. We had entrenched codes of ethics, and though it applied only to the media transmitted over public airways, there was a general notion that we needed balance in reporting. The Fairness Doctrine was established in 1949 by the FCC, and it said that broadcast entities had to share contrasting views when it came to issues of public importance. It was in the public interest, which is part of our government's job to protect, that we have an informed citizenry. Reagan ditched the Fairness Doctrine in 1987, and he set the stage for every Rush Limbaugh wannabe that we have today. Reagan opened the spigot for hate media. Case closed. End of story. But did the Fairness Doctrine really work? Well, it depends on your point of view, but yes. There is zero question over the fact that the largest newspapers and radio and television stations have been owned by very rich people for a couple of centuries. And that's what the idea behind the Fairness Doctrine set out to balance. But the Fairness Doctrine was, in fact, a sorry consolation prize to what the legislators and grassroots activists wanted. They wanted a section of the dial on both TV and radio that was set aside for non-commercial interests. They were rightfully afraid in the 1930s and 40s that all media was controlled by big money interests and beholden only to those Mr. Moneybags owners and their equally rich advertisers. They had noticed that in the late 1940s, after World War II, the left-leaning voices were taken off the air, largely because the right-leaning advertisers refused to buy time on those shows, and they wanted the public to get a diversity of opinions without regard to the interests of deep pockets. 
they lost. We ended up instead with a greatly watered-down version. Still, that version did a world of good. Because of the Fairness Doctrine, pro-civil rights voices got airtime on Mississippi radio, and that became one of the tools to combat racist broadcasters in the 1960s. The Fairness Doctrine supplied the beginning of the fight against big tobacco by giving voices against the huge ad budgets everywhere. But it was also used by the right wing. Phyllis Schlafly, that crazy woman in a girdle, used the Fairness Doctrine to promote her ultimately successful drive to stop the Equal Rights Amendment for women. Even the NRA used the Fairness Doctrine. Judges, and I'll give you two names that should make you wake up in a tangle of urine-soaked sheets, Scalia and Bork, were the ones who started taking away the Fairness Doctrine. Those judges, in between all their expense-paid trips to some naked retreat in the Redwood Forest, wanted to protect corporate profits. All about the money, all of the time. Never forget that. So, Congress wrote the Fairness Doctrine into law, with very bipartisan support that included the strong backing of Newt Gingrich and Jesse Helms. And Reagan vetoed the bill. So that's one reason why we're in a world of shit today with what people think is the worst polarization in history. First, like we went over earlier, it's not the worst. Where we were for almost a century prior to the Civil War, that was the worst. Even more so than today, people read what they wanted to hear. Confirmation bias cubed. Still, part of this pending cesspool lays clearly at Reagan's bumbling and excessively corrupt feet. The big question is, will it get worse? For the moment, we still have enough people who understand that mainstream news has a paid staff of professionally trained journalists and editorial checks and balances. Do they make mistakes? We all do. But they try really hard to get it right. The real journalistic outlets still fire people for dishonesty. That fact should tell you volumes. There are enough Americans who at least remember professional journalism, and those people are intellectually honest enough with themselves to know that it matters. One thing to never lose sight of is that having more media outlets is a double-edged sword. It is a fetid petri dish for confirmation bias. If a one-legged evangelical pedophile wants to find a news outlet to tell him he's on the right track and that all classical music must be eliminated, he can find that. There's always someone ready to occupy a niche with their own blog or, God forbid, a smart-ass podcast about American history. Bottom line, though, while I spend days researching these episodes for you brilliant and beloved listeners, more and more people are setting their worldview based on false information that is deliberately not fact-checked. But wait, there's more. With this huge competition for audience, the overall revenue stream is split so many times that the important real journalism jobs and budgets get cut. And we've been going down that way for a while. In the 1980s, American TV networks kept foreign bureaus in about 15 different cities. Places like Beijing, Cairo, Moscow. Places where, you know, news might happen. How else would we ever know who Garrick Utley was? By 2010, they were down to about five foreign bureaus each. But today, they tend to rely on a network of local journalists in the country being covered. Turns out that's what other countries did all along. And if we think we need to see Leslie Stahl in a pith helmet and a flak jacket, we have airplanes. I mean, who the hell knew there were competent reporters and smart people who weren't American? Knock me over with a feather. The problem now is idiot producers who don't think Americans need international news. So the amount of international news on your broadcast 
is like a fifth of what it was in the 1980s. Newspapers have it even worse, and it's the small towns that feel it the most. Without that voice of the community, you get more distrust of each other. That's supported by research. It's a fact. And the loss is not aligned to viewpoint. The states that have lost the most journalists per capita are California, New Jersey, and Texas, in that order. Of course, some states were exempt because, you know, reading and shit. Reminds me of this brilliant joke from Boston comic Barry Crimmins about a guy who was arrested in Kentucky for having a book. He got off on a technicality. No one could prove it was a book. Big city newspapers have had to eliminate their correspondents even in the state capitals, the places where they are most needed to pound a few beers with legislative staffers and get the real story. The important news bits don't come from press conferences and releases. You get the real scoop while you're drinking out of a bag with Hal Holbrook in a parking garage. Finally, there are the never-ending voices who speak out against real journalism and vetted reporting. Those voices are amplified because the fierce competition for advertising dollars has come down to this insanity of counting clicks. And if the orange goon picking lint out of his giant ass keeps getting clicks, that means free publicity for the voices of unreason. It is my opinion that we need to, in even and reasonable tones, speak out against those voices. When your MAGA uncle starts raving about lamestream media at Thanksgiving, shoot him the facts about how a big-time newsroom operates. Sure, he may fling gravy at you like a poo-throwing monkey, but keep dropping the word ethics. That eventually shuts him up. Play recordings of Robert Reich on very low volume while they sleep. Duct tape them to a recliner and play Spotlight and All the President's Men on an endless loop. There are things you can do. Journalistic ethics and true investigative journalism mean something. Ethics are still important in newsrooms and everywhere else. They are still followed at American newspapers and most of the television networks. When there are obvious breaches of the public trust, it almost always traces back not to a journalist, but to a good hair talk show host or sad little gray accountants. Up until the Reagan years and the thought process of me and my profits strolling down the avenue, the news operations of a TV network were a responsibility, not a profit center. I'm all for making cashola, but the better people on the planet also know that not every single thing needs to make you money. Who still does investigative journalism that keeps us on the right track? And I'm not talking just political stories. I'm talking about who's keeping an eye on judges lining their pockets to send kids to private prison. Or who's making sure the public works department isn't charging $30,000 water bills to the owner of a vacant lot? Dozens of longtime established newspapers still do that. And some smaller ones, too. Read the list of Pulitzer Prize winners for investigative news, and you'll see not only the papers you'd expect to see, but the occasional Charleston, West Virginia Gazette Mail, the Sarasota Herald Tribune, and even the Pecos Independent and Enterprise. Read the citations for each winner. Take the time. Read about the stories they broke. It is truly inspiring. There are also a great number of reputable investigative blogs and websites. Many are nonprofits. Some are for-profit. Some of them are really good, and I'm talking about operations that play by the right rules. There are even places that do combined articles with the participation of right-leaning, left-leaning, and centrist journalists. ProPublica is good, but there are dozens, national and on the state level. 
There is good stuff out there. And again, I'm not just talking politics. I'm talking fraud in the medical industry and jailing people for being mentally ill. Important stories. One of the websites had a great line about being nonpartisan, but also not doing false equivalency. In other words, sometimes there are not good people on both sides. But not everyone who should be doing real reporting is anymore. Rolling Stone, which does employ investigative journalists, reported at the end of May 2023 that Fox News closed its investigative department, citing cost studies following the Dominion Voting System's court case loss. It, of course, kept people on the air who pushed the lies that cost them the $787 million in the first place. But what do you expect from Fox News? Thomas Jefferson didn't always practice what he preached. But he said lots of things that hold up today, and perhaps none more than this. Our liberty depends on freedom of the press, and that cannot be limited without being lost. That means it needs defending against politicians who would minimize it, and against spittle-dripping morons who loudly denigrate real news-gathering operations who operate every single day under a code of ethics. We have to stand up to them with the truth. History doesn't always come with an action item, but this episode does. Please subscribe to a newspaper today. Better yet, subscribe to two. Get your local one plus the New York Times or Washington Post. I identify those because their coverage truly is national in scope. Please don't forget that little small-town newspaper that keeps people informed. Those papers with a three-person staff in a town of 5,000 are vitally important to American democracy, and they need your support. Maybe adopt a small town and subscribe to their paper. It's cheap. Get an online subscription, find that fantastic nonpartisan investigative news website, and send them a few bucks. Did I mention nonpartisan? Suck it up and give real journalism the old credit card digits. Okay, speaking of writing, here's a little plug. I have a new novel that'll be coming out in the next few weeks, and I know you will be shocked to hear it's historical fiction. It's also quirky and funny. I know, sit down before you get the vapors. I'll tell you more, but the best way to keep informed is make sure you're subscribed to my newsletter. It comes out roughly once a month, and you sign up at the bottom of any page on my website at MikeVanceWriter.com. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check out my website at MikeVanceWriter.com. Prick the Balloon is copyrighted by Mike Vance, all rights reserved.